Second Corinthians chapter 9 is where we find ourselves. We're working our way through this New Testament epistle, and we're well on our way to finishing the book here. We find ourselves in chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are two of the most important chapters in the Bible concerning Christian stewardship. I'm sure you know that. And as we read these two chapters, we, we get the sense that Paul knew the Corinthians were going to give. That was not in question. Nor is it in question, by the way, that uh, the members here at Red Rocks Baptist Church are going to give. Our people have been amazingly generous and faithful in this matter over the years. But the underlying question that we read here is about the heart. What is the condition of the heart? Paul has challenged them about giving, but he instructs them about giving with the right motive and for the right purpose. This passage is dealing with motives in giving. In many ways, Christianity could be likened or characterized as a heart relationship with Jesus Christ. In the matter of our witnessing, if we're sharing the gospel and it's not from our heart, it's really not going to be effective. When it comes to our service, if we're not doing it from our heart, we're just going through the motions, it's not going to be effective. And the same with our giving. If we're just doing it out of rote and obligation, then we're not going to see the blessing that God wants us to see because we're not giving from the heart. This is certainly true with our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He gave his life, and he gave it willingly. We can't help but notice that in the scriptures. Jesus himself said, it's recorded in Acts, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's a hard lesson to get little children to understand at Christmas time, but it is more blessed to give than to receive. So the Bible really gets to the heart of the issue when it comes to giving. Let's talk about that. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, let me read verses 1 through 5. We read them a moment ago, but let's look at that first section. Now concerning the ministry to the saints, it is superfluous. That's not a word that we use a lot, but used here in the King James. Superfluous means unnecessary beside the point, maybe. Paul is saying, it's really not necessary for me to write to you about this because I know you're going to give. Verse 2, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Acacia was ready a year ago and your zeal has stirred up the majority, the other Christians. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting, remember he sent Titus, and the other unnamed brother that's talked about in the latter part of chapter 8 to prepare the Corinthians to receive their gifts so they wouldn't collect it when Paul was there. I've sent the brethren lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready, lest if some of the Macedonians come with me, some of the other believers come with me, he says, and find you unprepared. It'd be embarrassing for them to realize that you're going to participate and you didn't even do it until I got there. We, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time, 
and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not of grudging obligation. So Paul's getting to the heart of their giving. So I noticed four things in this chapter that we're going to talk about uh, concerning our giving, how we should give. First of all, he mentions verses 1 through 5, we should give with readiness. Not someone pulling us across the line, not someone twisting our arm, but to realize that we have the privilege of giving to God's work and seeing it multiply. We should give with readiness. To summarize, Paul is saying here, fulfill your pledge. You pledge to give a year ago. He's mentioned that a couple of times in these two chapters. Fulfill your pledge. He's urging them to follow through with what they said they would do. He's saying, be people of your word. Fulfill your commitment. Do what God laid on your heart. You've talked about it, now go ahead and do it. He knows they will give, but he wants them to give with a spirit of readiness, not reluctancy. So we need to stop and and say, is that how I give? Do I give with a spirit of readiness, with a spirit of generosity or reluctancy? Why does Paul press this fulfillment of their promise? And he tells us. Obviously, there was a need in Judea. We know that. That's why they were taking the offering. So it's to meet a need. But more than that, what does he focus on in this passage? He says, I don't want to be embarrassed. I want to avoid embarrassment. He says both I don't want to be embarrassed, and I don't want you to be embarrassed. Lest the other Christians come and they find out you haven't done it. You haven't done what you promised. So Paul had used them as an example. Paul had held up the Corinthian believers as an example to other churches, Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi, etc., how generous they were going to be, how they had promised that they were going to be generous for the needy saints in Jerusalem, He's now saying, I don't want to be embarrassed after I bragged about you to come to find out you don't follow through with it. If we do not fulfill our God-given responsibilities in the matter of giving, we set a poor example to the young believers and to other Christians who look to us for leadership and for example. And that's why Paul says, I have boasted of you. And he says, I don't want to be embarrassed. He says in the last part of verse 2, he says, and your zeal hath stirred up the majority. What I've told them about you have stirred up the other believers, the, the many people that have already given. They got challenged and they responded because they heard about your generosity. Now follow through with it. You know, if we don't give, and if parents don't set the example, where will their children ever learn the responsibility. If they don't see their parents writing a check, or now a lot of people do it online, or putting it in the offering bag, or putting it in the offering box, if they don't understand that this is a priority in their home, and if their parents don't teach them, hey, you receive some money, you need to set aside an offering for God. If parents don't teach their children that, they will never know it. How will they learn it without a, a great example living it out before them? Paul was saying it's important for you to follow through. You know, I have boasted, I'm using Bible language here that Paul uses in these verses, I have boasted about the generosity of our church to other pastors and to other people. I've told them how generous our church is. 
I told them about the challenge that we had at our missions conference a couple of years ago when our speaker said, have you ever considered helping with a translation project? And I said, no, I've never been challenged about that. He said, well, we're doing one, Bibles International. He was from Bibles International. We're doing one for the, the Aka people that are in China and Vietnam and, and Thailand. And, and he says, would you participate in that? And I said, how much would it cost? And he said, about $90,000. I said, oh, we have a three-day missions conference. We won't come anywhere close to that, you know. I said, but I'll do it. We raised the $90,000 in two days and paid for the translation. I had the privilege of going over there about a year and a half or two years along with Bill Blatchley, and it was done, and those people received the Bible, the Bible in their own language for the first time, and they fell on their knees, and they cried and and they sang praises and there were people from all of those five countries that spoke the Aka language that were were there they were overwhelmed with joy one of the highlight experiences of my life I bragged about the generosity of our people I remember when we were at South Sheridan before we built this facility our parking lot lights didn't work and it was dark and truthfully it was dangerous and we couldn't buy those lights anymore and we knew we had to put up new lights and one night I said, hey, we need to replace all the parking lot lights. I forget how many there were, you know, 22 or whatever. And we don't have the money in the budget. And it costs this much per parking lot light. And there was man after man, family after family that stood. We replaced every single light in the parking lot that night as they pledged. At our old facility, the balcony had been condemned. It was falling off. It was a cantilevered balcony, and it was starting to pull away from the wall. And so we decided we need that balcony, and we need to repair it, but it was going to cost a lot of money. We raised the money not only to repair the balcony, but I challenged our people there, and we recarpeted, we redid the walls, we completely redid the entire auditorium at South Sheridan. And people stood up, and we did it without borrowing any money. When we came to this facility to buy the land, it was $6.2 million. To buy the land to build the building, it was $25 million. I went to bank after bank, and people wouldn't lend us the money. Finally, we found a credit union that was willing to do that, but we had to raise a significant amount of money. And the people of Red Rocks Baptist Church stepped up. We bought the land over this last several years have paid down the loan in a hurry so that now we only owe a few hundred thousand dollars. I have bragged, or use the Bible word, I have boasted about the generosity of the people at Red Rocks Baptist Church. I can identify with Paul. I know what pride he felt and what camaraderie he felt, and I've used you people as an example of God working in people's heart and giving above and beyond what they would normally give. And Paul is doing that right here. You know, it's easy sometimes for Christians who've been around the Lord's work for years to develop a ho-hum attitude about stewardship. Well, yeah, we're going to hear about it from time to time. I guess it's my obligation to give. And just to have a, a laissez-faire, just kind of a ho-hum attitude about giving. Listen, God 
doesn't want us to become lethargic about any area of the Christian life. God doesn't want us to become ho-hum about any aspect of our Christian living. We want to be excited that we get to share the gospel. We want to be excited that we can disciple people. We want to be excited that we can give. All of it is an aspect of Christian life. And giving is part of it. In verse 5, Paul is reminding us that we have a small, maybe we would say a narrow window to give. He says, therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time, because I'm soon coming, Paul says, and to prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity. You've got a narrow window of time, Paul is saying, to take up this offering so it's ready when I arrive, I can collect it, and with the brethren, we take it on to Jerusalem, is what he's telling us. So Paul is reminding them they have a really a very narrow window of opportunity, and that's true of us. It's not between you know now and when Paul arrives, but we have a narrow opportunity which is called this lifetime. And as we're reminded every time we have a funeral, we have a we have a narrow window of time to serve God, to invest our, our goods in, in God's program, so we will see a reward someday. And we don't have large amounts. Most of us don't have large amounts to give. And that isn't what God is asking for, for most people. It is the small things done over time that make a difference. It's the small investments in your marriage that make a difference over time. It's the small investment in our children that make a difference over time. It's the small investments in our health, whether it be exercise or diet or whatever it might be, that make a difference over time. It is a small investment in retirement, investing that makes the difference over time. It makes such a big difference. So Paul is urging them to give with a bountifulness, not a covetousness in their giving. Giving ministry of our church is not something that is used to shame people or to browbeat people into giving, but it's presented as an opportunity for spiritual growth and eternal reward. You've heard me say the only two things that we'll see on the other side of this world in eternity are the people we've influenced to come to Christ and the money we've invested in the kingdom of God. That's the only two things. The second thing he says, not only should we give with a readiness in verses 1 through 5, but verses 6 through 11, we should give with a bountifulness. Let's read those verses as well. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So then, let each one of us give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, or out of necessity, so he sets those two things aside. Make sure you're not giving grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you. In other words, God is able to meet your need if you have a bountiful attitude in your giving. 
For God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. You'll always have enough. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now, may he who supplies seed to the sower, picks back up on his earlier illustration, and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. We should give with bountifulness. Paul uses an agrarian illustration, an illustration from farming. And he's discussing here what's commonly called the law of the harvest. In verse 6, he points out that we reap in proportion to the amount that we sow. And what's he dealing with here? He's dealing with giving. So the first principle he's saying is we will reap in according to what we sow. We will reap primarily in eternity what we sow in this lifetime. That's something all of us should get impressed upon our heart and our mind. We reap according to what we sow. That's true with our money. Obviously, it's true with sharing the gospel. Not everybody that we share the gospel with is going to be saved. But the more we share the gospel, the more people will be saved. We reap according to what we sow. We cannot expect abundant crop if we only sow a few seeds. Most of us who garden when we're planting radishes or peppers or, or whatever it is, we throw a bunch of seed in that track that we've dug with our hoe and we sow more than we really need to. If you put it one here and one there and one here, you're not going to get much. But if you sow a lot, you'll have to thin it out. You'll have to thin those radishes out, but you're going to get an abundant crop. And that's what he's reminding us of. The law of the harvest operates in the spiritual realm as well as in the physical realm. And that is, spiritually, we reap what we sow, we reap after we sow, and we reap more than we sow. If only reaped what we sow, farming would be a very unprofitable business. If you only got back what you sowed in the ground, every farmer would say, I quit. No, we sow and we reap a hundredfold. And we reap after we sow. No farmer plants one day and expects a crop the next day. We reap what we sow. We reap after we sow. We reap much more than what we sow. That's the law of the harvest. Anybody with a garden or a farming background understands that. If we want great temporal and especially eternal blessing in our Christian life, we have to sow much. And we have to sow our very best. We don't hoard the very best. We give our very best. As you know, I grew up on a farm. We had several corn cribs where we would stash the corn and use it during the winter months in the grist mill. We had a grist mill that hooked up to one of the tractors and you'd throw oats in it, you'd throw some minerals in it, but mostly you'd throw corn, corn on the cob. And the cows would eat that, of course, and help the milk production along with hay. And one of the corn cribs was up above the hog pen. And so we put the corn up there through an auger. Then we shoveled it down into the grist mill with our shovels. And that's where my brother caught his arm in the auger when I was responsible. 
And up in the corn crib, all along the rafters, there were finishing nails about three to four inches apart. All the rafters, every 18 inches or however far, on both sides of the rafter, there were finishing nails. And finally, one day, I, we didn't use them. I said to my dad, what are all these nails? I mean, they're kind of a hazard, you know, when corn's all the way up there and we're walking up there trying to shovel the corn down. Why all these finishing nails on every single two-by-four? He said, well, years ago, we would take, as we were using the corn, we'd take the very best corn and we'd shove it onto that finishing nail and we'd line the rafters with the very best corn, not the little ears, not the crummy corn, but the very nicest of the ears. Because you, you save the best, you feed the lower quality, you save the best because you plant that the next year. And I said, oh, I get it. Save the best so you have a better crop and you kind of improve your crop over the year. By the way, now it's against the law. I don't know if you know this. It's against the law for farmers to keep their own corn. And some of the other industries have patents on corn and wheat. You cannot keep your corn and sow your own corn. It's against the law. So we don't do that anymore. It's patented corn, and you have to buy the corn seed, the wheat seed. You cannot keep your own and, and use it. It just kind of reminded me, hey, wait a minute. Farmers know that. We keep the best so we can sow the best so we improve the crop. That's a principle for us. It's a part of the sowing and reaping principle that, that God has placed in life and in ministry. We give our best to God so we will someday see a great return on that. Now notice in verses 8 and 10, Paul discusses the seed provided, the seed planted, and the seed prospered, I see here. He says, and God is able to make all grace abound towards you. God gives us, he says here, all sufficiency. Paul is saying, when we are bountiful in the way that we invest our material means... God will see to it that our needs are met. And I'm guessing that we could have a line of people march through here and testify to that. That I've given and God has met my needs. Matter of fact, God has exceeded my needs. He has blessed me in such a way that I could have never received this. And I'll give you an illustration of this, and it's very personal. We live just a mile up the road, just north of the church. My wife and I used to live over here in Bear Creek Village. And Starry has some arthritis, and we talked about getting into a ranch, maybe a walkout ranch. And when they were doing the Parade of Homes up here, we went up there, and we kept going through the Parade of Homes. Matter of fact, we went through the Parade of Homes probably five times. And we liked a particular builder who was voted Builder of the Year the last 10 years when that was going on. One day we were in the infinity home and we were talking about things and I noticed a, a shorter man. I thought he looked Jewish over here. I said to Star, I bet you that is the owner of infinity home. Look how he's bossing people around. She said, well, maybe. I said, I want to meet him. I want to talk to him. So I walked over there and I said, are you the owner of the homes? He said, yes, I am. I said, I want you to know I love the homes. Every one of the homes, I like them all. He said, let's get you in one. Well, I wasn't ready for that, truthfully. And I said, well, actually, we come up here. We've been in these homes a number of times, but they're out of our reach. They're beyond us. He said, how much? 
I wasn't expecting that either. He was kind of putting me on the spot. I said, well, probably $150,000. He said, let's make it happen. I didn't know what he meant with that. He said, let's make it happen. I had never met this man before. And he said to me, let's make it happen. I said, okay, I'm interested. Let's talk about this. He said, I will give you, and I had already told him, I said, I'm a pastor. I pastor the church right down the hill. I said, I have probably more influence than I do money. And uh, maybe I can influence people to move up there. We have a couple, three families in our church here that live up there. He said, let's make this happen. He said, I'm going to talk to your realtor. She's getting in on the deal. She'll sell your house for nothing, and she'll give me some of the cost of what she, and she was here in our church. And uh, he gave me $150,000. Nobody in my lifetime has ever done that. He said, I'll allow you to pick out your granite, your hardwood floors, not the furnishings, but some of the other things in your house, and I'll give you the lot. I didn't know if I should spit or wind my watch or just pick my jaw up off the floor. And truthfully, I didn't think it would happen. We came to closing, and that is exactly what happened. Now, let me tell you, that isn't because Les Hines is a great negotiator. I'm not, and I didn't. And it wasn't because I knew this guy and he wanted to do me a personal favor. I'd never met him before. But he got me into that home, Starry and I into that home. We could have never purchased that home, and that home has been the best investment we've ever made. There's one reason why that happened. Because I think I can say before God, after I became a Christian, I made a commitment to giving and being generous with the Lord. And at that juncture in time, God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do for you. I believe exactly what this passage is saying. If we sow bountifully, now don't go out of here and say, well, Pastor Hines said, if I give generously, I'm going to get a home given to me. By the way, I didn't get it given to me. He just knocked down the price significantly. And that house has increased in value way beyond what I could have ever imagined. I believe if we sow bountifully, we will reap bountifully primarily in eternity, but that's also applying to right here today. And many of you can testify to that, that God has prospered you and God has blessed you. And you really point it back to the fact that you learned the importance of giving. And God has met your needs, as Paul says right here. And it's illustrated throughout the Bible in many passages. Recall the story of God's miraculous provision for the prophet Elijah. During the great famine in Israel's history, God says, I want you to go away from the people and you just camp out by this creek. The creek dried up. The food was all gone and God sent ravens, an unclean bird, by the way. He sent ravens to bring food every day to the prophet Elijah. Or David saying in the psalm, I have been young and now I'm old. So David is talking about his whole life. He says, I was young and now I am old, and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Psalm 37, verse 25. 
So Paul discusses the seed that God is going to provide, and then he talks about the seed planted. And look in verse 10, he says, and he will multiply the seed you have sown, he says in verse 10. You will multiply the seed you have sown. Giving is compared to sowing seed. This is the way of saying that money given to the Lord's work is not only a contribution, it is an investment. Giving to God's work is not a contribution, it is an investment. That's why he says lay up treasure. God wants us to become rich, not necessarily in this life, but he wants us to become rich in heaven. That's why he says lay up treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy nor thieves break through and steal. He wants us to lay up our treasures in heaven. So it's compared to sowing seed. It's an investment. All true giving is sowing. Spiritual benefits are reaped. This is true in our personal lives and it's true in the lives of others. We like to help others because we see the blessing it brings to us, but it's a great blessing to them. I think this is one of the reasons why Satan stirs up such resentment and roadblock and resistance of the hearts of many Christians. Because Satan understands, Satan understands the Bible. He doesn't believe all of it, but he understands the Bible and he sows up such resistance because he does not want Christians to reap the spiritual benefits. And so he throws up roadblocks. He knows that when Christians begin to be faithful in the matter of their giving, they're on the road to blessing. They're on the road to God's blessing. And so he impedes their progress. Just as surely as seed sown in good soil will bring forth a crop, so will money given to the Lord work reap a bountiful spiritual harvest. I'll close here. Then Paul discusses the seed prospered. Again, in verses 10 and 11, notice the words that used. Multiply, increase, enrich. That's all talking about prospering. Multiply, increase, enrich. The more we learn to give by faith, the more God will bless us as a result of that faith. Giving is much more a matter of the heart than it is of the wallet. Giving is much more a matter of the heart than it is of the income. It is a faith matter. We exercise faith in other issues. We exercise faith in the giving issues as well. Because if we don't learn to do it, we're going to miss out on God's great blessing. I don't want you to get to heaven someday and say, Oh, Lord, I don't have much reward. I didn't realize that if I invested in this life, I could have received a heavenly reward. I want to be able to say, Lord, I did challenge people from the word of God about the harvest that they could reap someday in heaven because I taught them that giving now has eternal consequences and glory. Don't miss out on that kind of an opportunity. Probably all of us of any adult years here have missed out on some kind of an opportunity. Let me give you an example of one. Have you ever had a great opportunity presented to you only foolishly to turn it down? Nolan Bushnell had a knack for gadgets and electronics. He began sharpening his skills as a manager of games in an amusement park. After getting a degree in electrical engineering, he began tinkering around with more cutting-edge electronics. In the 1960s, he was one of the privileged computer science students who played with space war on mainframe computers. 
He had this idea that you could play interactive games on a TV monitor. Nobody had ever thought of that before. Bushnell tinkered around some more. Then in 1972, he founded a company, some of you who are older will recognize the name, called Atari. They soon put out one of the first video games ever invented called Pong. Became an immediate success. Then they decided to invent a machine to take a home version of Pong and the Atari 2600 was born. And so the home gaming market began right then. In the meantime, Bushnell became acquainted with a 20-year-old chap who was tinkering around in his garage in the Bay Area. His name was Steve Jobs. Along with Jobs, a fellow named Steve Wozniak was working with Bushnell. They were fiddling on the home computer idea. Jobs, Bushnell had a few dealings, but in 1976 they parted ways and Jobs and Wozniak continued dabbling around in Jobs' garage. And then Jobs approached Bushnell. He had an engineering, electrical engineering background and was very smart in this area. So Jobs approached Bushnell with an opportunity. Bushnell could own one-third of his new company, Apple. One-third if he would invest $50,000. He turned it down. Bushnell said, these are his words, Steve asked me if I would put in $50,000. I could afford $50,000. He asked me if I would put in $50,000 and he would give me a third of the company. I was so smart, I said no. It's kind of fun to think about that when I'm not crying about that. End of quote. Apple was the first company in the history of the world to be worth a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars. And Bushnell would have owned one third of that. Most of us, because we're hearing it being talked about with the social spending bill that's being bantered around in Washington, we can't get our heads around. A trillion is no comparison to a billion. A trillion is a billion times a thousand. It's a thousand billion dollars. A trillion is a one with 12 zeros after it. And Bushnell would have owned one third of that trillion dollars. Giving to God's work is investing. It's an opportunity to invest in something that we will reap eternal dividends over. God promises to bless our investment and he promises to multiply it. We've all missed out on opportunities. Don't miss out on the opportunity of a lifetime. The opportunity to take material things, to take your material wealth and to invest it in God's kingdom and see spiritual dividends that you will enjoy and reap for millions of years to come. That's investing. That's an opportunity nobody should miss. Let's pray. Father, we know the scriptures challenge us about giving by faith, trusting the Lord, seeing him meet our needs, seeing him work. And Lord, probably many of us have seen that take place to some small degree, some to a large degree. Lord, we know that you bless faithfulness, faithfulness over time. 
We see spiritual dividends. And we want to see that more and more. We want to trust you more and more. We want to grow in this matter more and more. Help us not to miss out on this opportunity to invest in the work of God. Not because we have great needs, but there will always be great needs. But because we see great opportunity. While our heads are bowed, maybe God is speaking to you about you and your finances, you and your giving, you and your stewardship. Are you faithful? Are you trusting him? Are you generous? You give with a readiness and a bountifulness. And the last part of this chapter we'll look at next week as it ties in with Thanksgiving, with thankfulness. I can't tell you what to give, but God can. God can direct you over time. I hope that you'll follow the Spirit's leading, the Word of God. Maybe you're here today and you're not even sure Christ is your Savior. Heaven's your home. We want you to know that. That's more important than what you make or what you give because it determines your eternal destiny. I'd be glad to stay after this service and talk with you, answer your questions, show you how you can be saved today. And I'm sure that would be true of Pastor Zach or Pastor Jacob. So seek us out if we can help you. Father, thank you that you've allowed us to live in a country where there's so much bounty, so much blessing, such an excess of material goods and wealth. We want to give back to you what we can so we can see it again in eternity. We ask it in Jesus' name.